You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. This episode is a recording of our event, Uyghurs Under Threat. In part one, we will be hearing from our academic panel. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Kyle Matthews. Uh, I'm executive director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies at Concordia University. Uh, We're very pleased today uh, to put on this conference, Uber Under Threat, talk about the plight of the Uber Muslim minority uh, in China, uh, of which uh, it's estimated between one to two million people are in concentration camps um, that have been deprived of their uh, liberty, of their freedom of movement, and calls of genocide and cultural genocide against that group. Um, we're very pleased to organize uh, this event. Um, it's been a hot button topic in Canada with the Canadian Subcommittee on Human Rights recently calling what's happening to the Uyghurs, calling it a genocide. Uh, we're very pleased today to bring together a group of top notch academics, survivors, um, and also policymakers and NGO people to talk about what actions can be done to protect the Uyghurs from these atrocity crimes. Uh, I'd like to say first off, really thank you to Concordia University's Department of Political Science for supporting this conference. And particularly I thank Professor Kim Manning uh, for working with MIGS on this. It's a pleasure and we're very glad we can make this happen. So first um, we're going to um, pass the floor to Erwin Kotler to give opening remarks. For those of you who don't know Irwin, he's a former Canadian uh, Attorney General and Minister of Justice. He is Canada's uh, top human rights hero. He's been active on working on human rights issues around the world, political prisoners against genocide and uh, mass atrocity crimes. And he's the chair and founder of the Raul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. We're very pleased, uh, Migs works closely with Irwin and we're very pleased that you could join us today, Irwin, and make opening remarks at this conference. The floor is all yours. Thank you, Kyle. May I begin by uh, commending you, uh, the MIGS team, and the Department of Political Science, Professor Manning, for organizing this timely and significant conference on what I would characterize as the most pressing human rights issue of our time. Indeed, we meet today at an important moment of remembrance and reminder. On the 85th anniversary of the Nuremberg Race Laws, on the 82nd anniversary of Kristallnacht, translated as the night of broken glass. But whereas I've always felt that translation belies uh, the horror of what took place at Kristallnacht, which became in effect the precursor to the Holocaust. The 75th anniversary of the liberation of the death camp Auschwitz, the most brutal extermination camp of the 20th century. But what makes the horror of the Holocaust and the genocides that followed, such as with the Tutsis in Rwanda, or what happened in Darfur, or to the present day, what is happening with the Rohingya? What makes these genocides so horrific? And not only the horror of the genocides themselves, that would be bad enough. What makes them so horrific is that they were preventable. Nobody could say we did not know. We knew but we did not act. Just as with regard to the plight and pain of the Uyghurs today, nobody can say that we do not know. The witness testimony, the scholarship, those who are appearing in your forum today have made it clear that we are witnessing not only crimes against humanity with respect to the Uyghurs, but arguably acts that are constitutive of genocide under the Genocide Convention as the recent report of the Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on Human Rights of Parliament, as you mentioned, of the House of Commons, in fact, themselves uh, determined. And so at this point, we might just take a quick appreciation, given the pain that is at the backdrop of it, but just to get a sense of what these mass atrocities constitute of genocide include. They are the mass incarceration in concentration camps of over one million Uyghurs, the largest detention of a minority in internment camps since the Holocaust, with survivors testifying of forced enslavement, torture, rape, disappearances, and murder. The massive, inhumane, 
and increasingly coercive population controls, such as mass sterilization, which has reduced the population between two, 2015 and 2018 in the Xinjiang region by 85% of the Uyghurs. The forcible separation of one and a half million Uyghur children from their families. The state orchestrated incitement to genocide, which characterized, for example, the religious practices of the Uyghurs as being malignant tumors and calling for the uprooting of these cancer cells. And the massive state-sanctioned assaults on Uyghur memory, religion, culture, language, and identity. The whole, as I said, constituted of acts of genocide under the Genocide Convention. Accordingly, we need to not only unmask and expose these crimes against humanity, these genocidal acts, but act upon them, including, and with this, I close. Number one, following the leadership of the Canadian Parliamentary Committee and making parliamentary and governmental determination that these are acts of genocide under the Genocide Convention. Two, having the UN authorize an independent, unfettered investigative mechanism into the Xinjiang reason. Number three, invocation of the responsibility to protect doctrine. Number four, sanction corporations with supply chains linked to the Uyghurs. And number five, targeted Magnitsky sanctions, all of which were themselves recommended by the uh, Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on Human Rights. As Holocaust survivor and, November, and Nobel Peace Laureate Elie Wiesel would remind us again and again, silence with evil remains and becomes complicity with evil itself. Indifference always means coming down on the side of the victimizer, not on the side of the victim. We cannot be indifferent. We must act. And I commend you for organizing this forum today. Thank you, Erwin, very much for your um, uh, very uh, important comments and as well as highlighting the five policy issues that not just Canada can take um, that you brought up, the, the subcommittee on human rights mentioned, but also any democracy can take. And I think the issue with this is that China is so powerful that we need all countries working together to, um, to really protect the Uyghurs. So with that being said, thank you, Erwin, for joining us. And I would like now to pass the floor to Professor Kimberly Manning of Concordia University. Um, Kim, the floor is all yours. Good morning. Thank you so much, uh, so much, uh, Dr. Kotler, for your remarks this morning, and um, to all of our guests who've joined us, um, literally from across the world, from Europe and from the United States. This, uh, just to give a little bit of background, um, this workshop really uh, came about as a consequence of uh, some local Uyghur activists coming together and meeting with me actually at the Simone de Beauvoir Institute where I'm currently principal to discuss what could be done um, locally and across Canada with respect to the ongoing uh, repression of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Um, and this workshop, which was originally planned or the beginnings of it were gonna be a live conference. And, and then we came up as we began to work with the Montreal Institute of Gen Genocide Studies, came up with this online format of a three hour workshop. Um, I, I therefore wanna begin um, by expressing my thanks to the weaker activists who really were the brainchild of this event, who um, provided us with names and um, possible ways of thinking about how to organize the event. Um, and, and I really wanna impress upon folks who are watching that this is a small community. There, there are only about 2000 Uyghurs currently uh, living in Canada at this moment. And, and so their, their presence is key and it's crucial and, and they really do need allies. Um, and, and so I, I just, in, in providing that background, um, I, I, I wanna say thank you to them and I wanna say thank you to Megs for having put in so much time and effort in, in making today possible. 
Okay, um, I'm going to begin by um, doing short introductions of all of our speakers. Um, and uh, so I'll start with their biographies quickly, and then we'll move into short statements by each of them. They're all going to keep their opening remarks to four or five minutes. I have some pre-prepared questions. I'll also keep an eye on the chat box to see what um, questions you may be having as you send them in through Facebook or YouTube, as they will appear on my stream as well. Uh, our first guest, uh, and I'm introducing uh, by alphabetical order, is Darren Byler, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Asian Studies at the University of Colorado, Boulder. He researches the dispossession of ethno-racial Muslim minorities through forms of surveillance and digital capitalism in China and in the Global South. He has a forthcoming book, Terror Capitalism, Uyghur Dispossession and Masculinity in a Chinese City, which is forthcoming with Duke University Press. And his current project considers how digital infrastructure, including surveillance, can be tied to new forms of control, both in China and in sites across the world where it is exported. Thank you, uh, Dr. Byler, for joining us today. Maria Melanson is a PhD candidate in the School of Religious Studies at McGill University. Uh, her fields of research are freedom of religion and minority rights. Uh, she hails uh, with a BA in social work and MA in religious studies from UCAM. And since 2018, she's been working with Dr. Susan Palmer, who's here at Concordia, as a research assistant on the project Children in Minority Religions and State Control where she is currently investigating the transmission of collective identity of Uyghurs outside of um, the Xinjiang and China. Dilner Rehan is a French uh, of Uyghur origin. Uh, Dilner Rehan holds a PhD in sociology and teaches Uyghur studies at the National Institute of Oriental Languages and Civilizations in Paris. She is the founding president of the European Uyghur Institute and director of the bilingual French Uyghur magazine on Uyghur studies, Regards sur les Uyghurs. Her field of research is mainly identity and nationalism in the Uyghur diaspora, but she also looks at gender studies among the Uyghurs, especially Uyghur women's role and place in the nationalist struggle in the diaspora. And finally, we have Sean Roberts with us today, who is an associate professor of the practice of international affairs and director of the International Development Studies Program at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. He's conducted ethnographic fieldwork among the Uyghur peoples in Central Asia and China during the 90s and has published extensively on this community in scholarly journals and in collected volumes. Um, I would note he is also the author of the just published The War on Uyghurs, um, which I have been reading in preparation for this workshop. Um, so that is our um, uh, quite remarkable panel today. Thank you again to all of you for, for joining us. Um, I would like to begin the program by uh, first asking uh, Dr. Byler to speak. Um, and again, just asking that you keep your remarks to be between four or five minutes uh, and they will be speaking directly to their particular areas of research. Um, and, and we will then seek to move into those issues more deeply as we carry on uh, over the course of the panel. Dr. Byler. Great, it's an honor to be here. I'll try to keep this brief. Uh, what I'd like to talk about in my five minutes is the way that genocide can be framed as, a, as part of a larger process of settler colonization. Um, if we look at the work of, of scholars like Patrick Wolfe, we can see that settler colonialism itself is a process of elimination and replacement. And often, in some cases, that means simply transforming the culture of the colonized people. But in other cases, it, it actually leads to mass death. And that's why there's such a strong connection between them, between genocide and colonialism. There's really three kind of main features of colonialism that need to be considered as part of this larger process. One of them is dispossession, taking the land, taking the labor of the people that are being colonized. Uh, a second point is a, a form of occupation. There has to be settlers in, in this space and also they have to capture the institutions of the society, which means the educational institutions, the banking system, all of the things that make the society work. 
The third element of settler colonialism is domination, a relationship in which one group of people is placed in a position of power over others um, and really can treat the colonized peoples uh, with impunity. The normal sort of human rights, civil rights don't apply to the colonized because they're in this subordinated position. So what does this look like for the Uyghurs and for the Kazakhs and the other indigenous peoples in Northwest China? Well, to, to understand this, we need to go back to the 1990s, which is when uh, China was opening up to the West, was becoming a manufacturer for the world and was in search of raw materials, of natural resources that could fuel their economy. And the Uyghur region is home to around 20% of Chinese oil and natural gas and even higher percentage of Chinese coal. And so it made a lot of sense that they would begin to build infrastructure, roads and pipelines into this region to get access to those natural resources. And this is a story of settler colonialism that we see play out in many places, even in Canada and in the United States. Um, natural resources is the primary driver and the people that live in those indigenous lands are really a, a sort of hindrance in getting access to the natural resource. Over time, the infrastructure building, the natural resource industry brought many, many uh, settlers into the Uyghur region, and that's how the occupation began. Prior to the 1990s, most Uyghurs didn't encounter Han people in their daily life. Han is the majority group in China. Uh, one of my Uyghur friends that I interviewed when I lived in the region told me that if a Han person came to their village, uh, it was a major event. Everyone would come out of their houses and they would look at the person because it was just so unusual to see a Chinese person, a Han person. That's now changed. There are Han people in every village. Um, it's, it's just a normal part of life. The other thing that's happened is those settlers have now taken positions of power in the villages. Uh, so they're the leaders of the, of the work brigade, the leaders of, of all of the educational institutions and, and other institutions of government. That has produced this relationship of domination, uh, one in which uh, Uyghur language, Kazakh language can be criminalized, which is what we've seen in the education system and in other institutional spaces. Chinese Mandarin is now the, the, the language of the state and the language of, of demonstrating your re-educatedness. So I'll end really quickly by telling a story of, of one of my friend's sisters uh, who called him about a year ago crying, saying uh, that she had a big test coming up um, where she was going to be tested in Chinese and she didn't know if she could pass the test um, because she hadn't grown up in a Uyghur language environment. Her family members all speak Uyghur, really don't speak Chinese, but she had to pass this test and she was around 13 years old. She was, she was moving from um, middle school, from an elementary school environment to the middle school. The middle school was going to be far away from home. It was a boarding school. And she was thinking if she didn't pass this test, that she would end up working in the factories like the others in her village that had been sent to coercive factory, uh, labor placement programs to go work in factories. So at a young age, she had to make this, uh, she, she was facing all this pressure. Fortunately, she passed the test. Only around 15% of the people that took the test in the village did. The rest are now on a track to go work in the factories. Um, so at a very young age, she was torn from her family, even though that was the choice she made uh, to, to go to this boarding school. Now doesn't see her family at all. She's in a completely Chinese language environment um, in this residential school. And residential schools are common throughout the entire region. Uh, almost all teenagers, Uyghur teenagers, live apart from their families uh, in those sorts of schools. She said that she's not forgetting her Uyghur. She still speaks it secretly to other Uyghurs in, in her class when they walk along the play field outside of the classroom. Um, but I think over time, she's, she's starting to lose her Uyghur. She sometimes now mixes her Chinese with Uyghur. And that's the fear that, that many Uyghurs have, is that the next generation of Uyghurs will no longer know their language, they'll no longer know their, their culture and history, they're no longer the authors of their own history. So I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Byler, for those um, really uh, illuminating remarks. And um, and I appreciate that you spoke directly to uh, the issues of settler co colonialism, um, uh, kind of a facet of Canadian history that many Canadian settlers are, are only coming to terms with in terms of our, our own 
lands where we live and work and raise our families. Um, and and the, the issue of language revitalization is, revitalization is a, a particularly pronounced one at the moment because so many of indigenous peoples in Canada um, have grown up without their languages as a result of uh, the resident, residential school system that was in place up until the early 1990s in some cases in Canada. So thank you for your remarks and and um, and making that contextualization in particular for, for some of those in our, our Canadian audience. I'd like to turn next to Ms. Melanson, um, who is going to speak, I believe, um, about uh, some of her interviews with Uyghurs uh, in the diaspora. Thank you. So hello everyone, uh, thank you for having me on this uh, panel. So to briefly introduce the research that I am currently conducting with uh, Dr. Susan uh, J. Palmer, who is the principal investigator on our SHARC funded project. And she's also an affiliate professor in the Department of Religions and Cultures at Concordia University. So we are investigating two things specifically. Um, first, we are collecting the immigration history of Uyghurs who left their homelands. So the reasons that led Uyghurs to immigrate uh, in the first place. And secondly, we are investigating the issues surrounding the transmission of the Uyghur identity from the first generation to the second generation in the context of the diaspora. Um, but also in particular, of course, in the context of the current situation that uh, Uyghurs are facing in their homeland. Um, we have focused on Canada and Turkey so far, mostly. Um, we have interviewed over 20 Uyghurs uh, living in Canada and a few Uyghurs uh, living in Turkey over the last eight months. Turkey is a transit country for many Uyghurs in the diaspora. So many of our uh, Uyghur uh, participants in Canada had previously lived in Turkey or they had ties uh, with Uyghurs living in Turkey. So we gathered also quite a lot of information on Turkey through our interviews with Canadian Uyghurs. So very briefly, just to give you a quick overview of our uh, general observations, um, the two contexts are quite different. In Canada, there are only around 2,000 Uyghurs and they are really split across the country. So this makes it quite challenging for them to establish support networks in areas uh, where there are a few Uyghurs. Um, and that's really anywhere outside of the areas of Toronto or Montreal, where uh, the Uyghur community is a bit more, is a bit bigger. Um, and also in, in Toronto and Montreal, uh, there uh, the Uyghurs have set up uh, Sunday Uyghur schools for children, which are quite popular. Um, so that's for Canada. In Turkey, there are approximately 60,000 Uyghurs today. Uh, so Turkey is the main home of Uyghurs uh, in the diaspora outside of Central Asia. And according to our participants, many Uyghurs feel really at home in Turkey. Uh, they like the culture, which they find similar to their own culture. Uh, and Turkish language is related to their own Uyghur tongue. So this makes it easier for them. Um, the problem is that many Uyghurs who fled to Turkey from their homeland, and this is probably more and more people since 2017, they, uh, they ended up kind of uh, stuck in Turkey, if I can say, if I can say, because they are um, not able to get their Turkish citizenship. Uh, so Turkey will grant them a long-term residency permit, which allows them to legitimately live and stay in the country, even if their visa expires. Uh, but with their the status, uh, they don't have any social security or benefits. Uh, they cannot find employment. Uh, they often have to work illegally, and they get paid below the minimum wage. Uh, but nonetheless, in Turkey, uh, they have a community, uh, they have freedom of religion, they can engage in activism and all these things. So despite the fact that uh, the Uyghur community in Turkey is big and dynamic, many Uyghurs in Turkey end up wanting to leave for economic reasons and sometimes also for political reasons since uh, Turkey has straightened is, its relationship with China in the last uh, years. Um, yeah, so just to wrap it up, um, in our research, we look at the challenges that Uyghurs face in these contexts, um, having left their homeland and raising their children in the diaspora. And obviously, the current situation in their homeland is a huge has a huge impact on the transmission of the Uyghur identity to the next generation. Uh, our interview data suggests that uh, Uyghurs in the diaspora feel they have a responsibility to counter the genocide that is happening. 
Um, and there is an effort to do so through educating the public and raising awareness uh, of the Uyghur situation in China in Parliament. Another strategy uh, is having many children and raising them in the Uyghur culture, speaking the, ling the Uyghur language and in keeping with the Islamic faith, faith for, for most people. Um, yeah, so that's it for the overview. Um, I look forward to your comments and questions. Wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, Ms. Melanson, for your remarks and adding this uh, additional context to our discussion as we move forward uh, in a few minutes. Very helpful. Um, next, I'd like to turn the, the panel over to Dr. Rahan. Um, I, I was really pleased that she was able to join us, um, given her role in, in, in Europe at the current moment and um, the important work she's doing in particular on gender issues. Um, Dr. Rahan? Uh, thank you, Kimberly. Merci pour l'invitation. Uh, I will talk more about uh, uh, on, uh, the Uyghur, Uyghur genocide from the gender perspectives. When we talk about uh, women in conflicts, very often we talk about situations in army conflicts. However, we know very few about uh, women in colonial situations where, um, where there is no necessarily a collective army violations, but colonial uh, violences could be both physical and psychological just as destructive or even more destructive as is the case of Uyghur women since especially uh, from the end of 2016. And sexual violences against women are part of determined uh, strategies perceiving various materials from community humiliation to ethnic cleansing, including the territorization of uh, civilians and the political opponents. Women, women are targeted because their attackers want to harm their mental and the physical integrity. They are, they are publicly assaulted to show that their men are incapable of defending them, also because they carry with the, within them uh, the future of their urban group. Uh, their ability to procreate, procreate is then destroyed by sterilization uh, uh, because they are forced to bear the children of the, of the enemy. And uh, women are particularly exposed to this kind of genocidal policy. It's uh, the case of Uyghur genocide now. State-sponsored uh, campaign uh, against uh, Uyghur women uh like <clears throat> current uh yeah uh Uyghur women and uh, mm, through a forced uh, sterilization uh, uh abortion and the implanting uh, cons uh, con con uh contraceptive uh, devices uh with their beauty campaign the authority chinese authorities are forcing Uyghur women to cut their long hair to become Modern women, according to Chinese government's norms, women wearing dresses or skirts deemed to too long by Chinese authorities are uh, arrested, arrested and uh, worst of all, while their husbands are locked up. Uh, Uyghur women are forced to share their bed and uh, their home with state employees sent in their houses by Beijing. May, uh, images and videos of Chinese men settled in Uyghur homes and uh, young uh, young women's testimonies of rape in their home uh, at the hands of these state employees regularly circulate on the internet. A significant number of the Uyghurs and the Kazakhs uh, locked up by China in these ethnic and religious concentration camps are women. Among uh, amongst the, the survivors. Many women uh, have testified as uh, to the inhuman and the degrading living conditions inside the camps, the torture inflicted, the gang rapes, and uh, the injections that caused of their periods to stop. For French intersectional feminist and researcher Françoise Vergès, this kind of appropriation of the womb of women is contemporary. Uh, with the emergence of colonial slave empires and uh, the birth of capitalism, the accumulation of material wealth by and for a colonial regime uh, rests 
on the plundering of colonized lands, the forced labor of slaves, but also the fruit of the womb of racialized women. Um, this model, the belly of racialized women as an element of capitalism, continued in the 19th century when millions of Asian men and women were imported to work in mines, plantations. It was still the belly of racialized women, which is exploited to satisfy the need of labor, uh, need for labor of imperialisms. The bellies of racialized women have therefore been creators of wealth, since slaves are regarded as material goods and thus continue constitute one of the pillars of the uh, nascent capitalistic capital system, which continues to structure. Uh, present day societies, the situation of Uyghurs, especially Uyghur women, should be analyzed and regarded in such uh, this uh, kind of reflex in the historical colonial and capitalistic uh, context. Um, uh, and uh, it is important to, uh, uh, to point out also in the, uh, in, uh, in the forced labor structures in China also, most um, um, of the uh, most of the uh, Uyghurs who work there by force are Uyghur women. Sexual violence against women in the context of war and ethnic conflict has been considered a violation of human rights since 1990s. But since four years, Uyghur women, uh, on the situation of Uyghur women, we did not hear a single voice from none of uh, international um, uh, structure for protection of uh, human uh, protection of uh, women rights thank you hmm. thank you thank so you much, so much. Dr. Dr Rahan, Dr. Rahan. Um, your, your your comments are 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 so apt um, and uh, I think drilling down into the, the the capitalist infrastructure and how it intersects with this moment of uh, settler colonialism, but also with genocide and, and feminist scholars who've been looking at genocide for a long time, recognize and you know insistently call attention to the way that genocide is gendered. And, um, and so taking that into account is really, really critical in understanding the impact for women, uh, for understanding the society as a whole and, and how the genocide is, is unfolding. Thank you so much for your remarks. Um, Dr. Roberts, I'd, I'd like to turn now to you uh, for your comments. Um, uh, at this moment, uh, looking out on 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 what is taking place. Thank you. Um, I wanted, in the interest of time, to bring up three points and themes that are um, in my my recently published book, "The War on the Uyghurs," from Princeton University Press. The first one um, is very much reiterates a lot of the things that Dr. Byler said. Uh, I characterize what's happening to Uyghurs inside China right now as a cultural genocide. And I use that term because the experience of Uyghurs since 2017 and, and that of other uh, indigenous populations in the Uyghur region is very much like that experienced by First Nations elsewhere in the world historically when confronted by settler colonialism. In other words, it shares more of the experiences of Native Americans and Australian Aboriginals who are often considered the victims of cultural genocide than it does with those who suffered during the Holocaust. The intent is not necessarily to physically exterminate the entirety of the Uyghur people, but to break their collective identity, destroy their social capital and sever their attachment to their homeland, making them inconsequential to the homeland's future. Uh, this does include efforts to depopulate the Uyghurs demographically and displace them from native villages. But these actions are not inspired by eugenics, but by profit, development, and settlement. However, the term cultural genocide is not meant to obscure the fact that these actions do constitute genocide for the, the UN Convention on Genocide, as mentioned by Dr. Kotler earlier. The second point I want to make is that China's characterization of Uyghurs as a terrorist threat has been largely disingenuous and just disingenuous and has helped to facilitate this cultural genocide. 
Furthermore, the United States-led global war on terror helped promote this justification for the state's attacks on Uyghur identity. This is particularly true regarding the recognition by the U.S. government of a phantom group called the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement as a terrorist group in 2002. While very recently, just in the past few weeks, the United States has delisted this group as a terrorist organization and has recognized that the group has not been operational for over a decade, the damage done by its listing in 2002 as a terrorist organization cannot easily be reversed. Mm -hmm. The story of how this occurred and its eventual ramifications is both complex and depressing, but I'm happy to elaborate on that uh, in our discussion. And finally, the last point I want to make is that while the issue of the Uyghur cultural genocide has become a geopolitical flashpoint in the context of growing great power competition and conflict between the U.S. and China, this should first and foremost be a humanitarian issue of global importance. In this sense, I think it's particularly important that the United States is not perceived as driving the international scrutiny of what is happening to the Uyghurs right now. Uh, in this sense, it's important that other states, such as Canada, take their own independent stances on what is happening to Uyghurs, and that those stances are motivated by a real concern for human rights for all rather than by geopolitical concerns. Uh, and along those lines, I'm particularly happy uh, to have been invited to this event today. I think it's gonna be very important uh, in the international uh, response to what is happening. Uh, thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Roberts, uh, for your remarks and, and sort of a kind of a global um, zooming out a little bit in terms of some of the most pertinent aspects of, of the, the unrolling um, genocide. Um, I, I think what I'd like to do is, is actually uh, dig down a little bit into some of the criteria. Um, two of the five criteria that define a genocide according to the United Nations are concerned children, both preventing verse and transferring children. Um, and this highlights the important role that the next generation plays in ensuring the future of a community. Um, as we move closer towards an official recognition of the genocide against the Uyghur peoples, um, how have Uyghur children, either in China or in the diaspora, been impacted by this current situation? And I, I open this to um, whoever would like to respond, uh, whether Mariev or um, Dr. Rehat or um, yes, whomever would like to jump in. Maybe I can respond uh, to this question. Thank you for the question. Um, I think first and foremost, Uyghur children have suffered a great deal from being forcibly separated from their parents. Um, in, in China, um, the state calls children whose parents uh, are, are detained, children in hardship. Um, and so the, the state will take custody of most of uh, these uh, children. This is something that uh, Dr. Um, Adrian Sens um, is, is, has worked on and is probably going to speak on in the next panel. Um, yeah, so the most recent reports show that these children are taught only in Mandarin and they are raised in the Han culture um, um, and they have to dress in a traditional uh, Chinese clothing. And this is all done in the name of inter-ethnic uh, unity. Um, and so, of course, this is really a simulation. It's forcibly transferring children of uh, a group to another group in order to erase their ethnic uh, identity. Um, so it's a kind of a version of the re-education camps, but for children. Um, the thing is, we can expect that adults won't come out of camps having completely forgotten their Uyghur uh, identity, but we cannot necessarily say the same for children. Uh, so being separated from their parents is, of course, affecting Uyghur children. Uh, but it's also affecting the Uyghur people as a whole. And in the diaspora, for instance, um, this has made safeguarding the Uyghur uh, language, history, identity, all the more important. And one way of doing that is by teaching, uh, teaching all these things to the next generation and transmitting the Uyghur identity. And also forcibly separating, uh, for, for being forcibly uh, separated uh, from their parents is not something that happens only in East 
Turkestan or in China. It also happens in the diaspora. In particular, in Turkey, there are reports of Uyghur children whose Uh, parents either just vanished or they decided to return to China um, uh, to get their things in order and they never came back. Um, so one of our sources who works for the Uyghur Rights Advocacy Project in Ottawa estimates that there could be around 2,000 Uyghur children in Istanbul uh, only who haven't heard back from their parents since they left for China. And sometimes this is wow. years ago. Um, in the case of, of Uh, Turkey, however, um, children are usually cared for by member of the Uyghur community themselves. So in Istanbul, for example, there is a, a, a school run by the Uyghur community, um, and this school will host uh, some of the children whose parents went uh, missing. Uh, some of the teachers take care of the, the children. Um, yeah. Briefly, uh, uh, just, I, I, I don't know, maybe, if, I think also the, the fear of, of having, even if you live with your, your parents still in, in uh, Xinjiang, the fear of losing them is also very present. And this has caused a lot of trauma to, uh, to the children. I'm going to stop here too. Thank you. Um, I think you've, you've touched on a number of um, uh, important themes, um, including I think the idea that, that when Uyghurs leave China, it doesn't mean that they're out of reach of uh, of consequences and 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 that can include um either losing contact with family members or and or um not being able co to communicate easily with family that remain in in the Uyghur region because of um uh practices of repression that the Chinese Communist Party uses to um on 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 relatives to try and 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 make those in other parts of the world um uh, uh to cut the break those ties and um and 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 try and force a kind of compliance um so it's it's not as simple in a sense um of when we thought about repression in the past where it was confined to a particular area. Um, this is having impacts in Turkey, it's having impacts in Canada um, as well, uh, even though some Uyghur, Uyghurs have been able to leave their homeland, which of course they don't want to do to begin with. Um, I, I think I want to just um, pivot slightly and and, um, and 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 I want to ask a little bit about um, Uh, the, 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 the nature of capitalism that's at work here. One of the things that's really struck me recently is um, the role that, uh, that labor is playing in, in terms of the genocide as it's currently playing out, both within the Uyghur region itself, but also as laborers are being exported, if you will, to other parts of China to work in factories. And I'm wondering if, uh, Dr. Roberts or Dr. Byler would like to comment a little bit on on how this is playing out. To, to me, it evokes when you combine it with thinking about the 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 kind of surveillance underway. It's it's almost Orwellian. We use that term a lot, but there does seem to me something that that is the, the parsing out of people into different layers, stratification within weaker society as well as within China as a whole. Sure, I can uh, address that question and, and also speak to the previous one a little bit. Uh, one of the women I interviewed in Kazakhstan in January is a woman named Guzira Alkan, who was held in a, a camp for about a year. Um, and one of the things she said while she was in detention is she met other young women there who had lost their children as they were taken and they were crying initially because of that. Uh, making too much noise and so the guards said why are you making this noise and they took them out um, they were saying you know our children are at home we don't know who's taking care of them and some of them were still nursing their children um, and she said after they took them away they were gone for about an hour or two and when they came back they were completely silent and they had been beaten really harshly um, so just to put a, a point on that it's it is a, a violent separation that's happening particularly for these detainees Kulzira was held in the camp for a year and then uh, was released. She thought maybe things are getting better, will get better for me. She had passed the Chinese tests and other things. Um, but then a week later, she was sent to work in a factory about seven kilometers from her camp. Um, 
and she recognized her boss when she arrived. He was uh, a Han person from Hebei province who had been touring her camp pre previously. He'd actually selected her as a worker. Um, she also recognized some of the overseers in the in the factory space as workers from the camp. So there's a, a really direct connection between the factory and the camps. Um, she has also said that there was lots of surveillance. They had her phone checked three times a day. They had body searches as well. At night, they were held in a dormitory where they received more instruction. Um, it was an extension directly of the camp, is how she described it. And she wasn't paid more than $50 per month. So she said, you can see this is slave labor. Thank you. That, that's very, yeah, very helpful. If I could, if I could just chime please, in about that. Please do. Um, I think one of the things um, that you kind of hinted at uh, about uh, the coercion in the region that is important to understand, um, the, the combination of the constant threat of internment or imprisonment and the omnipresent surveillance is also something that allows the government um, to implement all kinds of, of forced assimilation measures, including these labor programs, and make them appear voluntary. You know, yeah. it, Darren's story about um, the woman in Kazakhstan points out, you know, she she was in some ways very happy to move from an internment center to a factory. Um, and, and that, I think, is very important to understand in terms of how uh, the the coercions happening in this equation that um, almost nothing uh, that Uyghurs or other uh, ethnic groups in the Uyghur region uh, agree to do right now can be considered voluntary because there's a constant kind of hanging over of coercion that if you are not voluntarily participating in these uh, events, whether it's sending your children to boarding schools or going to a residential um, uh, factory to work, uh, then you will be assumed to be an extremist and then either subjected to internment or uh, to um, uh, imprisonment. Okay, thank you very much. Um, turning turning to um, a slightly different angle and thinking about the, 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 the catastrophe as it's unfolding, um, and returning to some of Dr. Rahan's comments um, about the gendered nature of the violence. I, I mean, if you were to ask members of the Chinese Com Communist Party or, or many of the Han population, um, many people would likely see this as a kind of a liberation for, um, for peoples who are living in the Uyghur regions um, and particularly seeing Muslim women as, um, you know, under the, the, if you will, under the boot of a patriarchal Muslim culture. Um, this, is, this is not uh, unfamiliar, I think, to um, at least some of us who, when we look at laïcité laws, um, including here in Quebec and in France, this idea that, that Muslim women are somehow more oppressed than our, um, than our, our, our women from uh, the, the more, um, um, secular West, or 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 even a Han, if you will, uh, modern modernity. Um, Dr. Rahan, I'm wondering if you could comment a little bit on how this is playing out. Like, what? How is it you were talking about women being told about cutting their hair? But but what is it that women are being told in terms of what their liberation is supposed to look like, and that impact that they that may be having? Directly on on the lives of women um, living in 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 the in the Uyghur region. Your your uh, microphone is off. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Alors, uh, donc. Uh, as as we just said, uh, you know, uh, the, this is a discourse of Chinese government, but also it is very consumed, uh, accepted by the uh, general uh, Chinese society on the uh, Muslim uh, on the Uyghur, uh, on the Muslims, especially on the Muslim regions like Uyghur region. And uh, when uh, you have studied the colonial history 
uh, of other uh, other countries, uh, uh, you can see the same discourse. It is typically colonial discourse to justify their uh, colonial politics uh, to uh, assimilation politics of uh, of a country. Um, it is a very similar when you see the colonial politics of France uh, on yeah. Algeria, for example. Yeah. It is exactly same politics and the same uh, mm -hmm. same discourses. Muslim women liberated, Muslim women oppressed by their uh, violent uh, mm -hmm. husbands, uh, fathers. Uh, and it is the same discourse in uh, in, in in China uh, on Uyghur women, and also uh, it was uh, uh, illustrated uh, in uh, you know um, before also uh, in the journals, uh, uh, in the Chinese media also it is a very dominant discourse, and uh, so uh, I uh, I think. Um, uh, it is very uh, uh, both the Uyghur women and the men in the region, but also the, for for researchers, it is uh, a clear colonial discourse of justif justification, uh, and it's one of the interesting thing also uh, on the you know um, this situation of uh, um, internment of millions of Uyghurs. Uh, in, uh, impact also on whole society on uh, and uh, create a situation. Uh, how to say in French? We say malsain, mal, uh, situation malsain, just just a situation, uh, perverse situation, mm -hmm. uh, to you know appropriation of um, Uyghur uh, particularity or Uyghur uh, cultural uh, cultural uh, Uyghur cultural uh, characteristics uh, by the Han women and Han men, uh, mm -hmm. Chinese men and Chinese mm -hmm. women, mm -hmm. uh, and also. Uh, uh, you, you can see that uh, this, uh, uh, by the videos uh, uh, this, uh, uh, uploaded uh, on the Chinese TikTok, we can see also the scene the uh, Uyghur woman uh, accompanied by Chinese men now uh, in, mm. the, in the bunkets uh, to ask them to drink and dance for yeah. Chinese men. Um, it is, okay. yeah, and also uh, when you see the inter, uh, uh, you know, separate uh, uh, separation of uh, the Uyghur children from their family, from their parents, uh, in this, uh, uh, and also you can see also this perverse situ situation of appropriation of Uyghur culture and imposition of yeah. Chinese culture to Uyghurs, and so you can see yes. the Chinese uh, learn Uyghur dance yeah. music. And uh, mm -hmm. we, even Uyghur, you know, Uyghur traditional Vietnam, uh, Uyghur traditional uh, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, and uh, and also you can see at at the same time uh, imposition of Chinese uh, characteristics or Chinese cultures, Chinese even Chinese cuisine to Uyghurs, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and it's the same situation in the. Uh, in the uh, internment of Chinese, uh, internment of Uyghur, Uyghur children. So uh, uh, all of them, it is a, a, a mix of uh, uh, a preparation of uh, others' culture, imposition of yes. even culture, dominant culture of, mm -hmm. uh, to others, and uh, and yeah. uh, all of them pass by uh, domination of women, of course. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I just think it's really important to recognize that what's playing out in in the in the in the Uyghur region um, and this this the the kind of imposition that's underway isn't uh, altogether unfamiliar, and and these are practices that have um, a deep heritage in 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 Western colonialism, but also in present day practices in and uh, including in in France and Quebec um, and other parts of of the world. Um, in our in our very few minutes left, I would like to turn to um, the, the 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 now what um, we will be having these questions ongoing in the remaining two panels now, but we are at a moment with the election of President. Um, well, President-elect Biden. Um, I, I was asked recently by a, a local Uyghur activist, well, under Trump, we've actually had quite a lot of support. What do you think will happen under Biden? And, and um, 
my response was, well, I think that there's perhaps um, more opportunity for international collaboration now than there was under the, the Trump administration. But I'd be really interested to hear some of our panelists, um, and particularly in light of, of Dr. Kotler's remarks as, as to what are the steps that should be taken now. So if some of you are interested in speaking to the what now moment, I'd really love to hear from you. Um, I, can, I can jump in first. Um, I think that, uh, as I mentioned in my um, opening remarks, I think it's important that there be uh, kind of an international coalition to address yeah. this issue. And, and I agree with you completely that uh, that is much more likely to happen now uh, with the Biden administration in, in, in the United States than it was the case with the Trump administration. Um, particularly if the Biden administration kind of follows the lead of the Obama administration in, in its approach to international affairs, which was very much focused on trying to build coalitions and leave mm -hmm. from behind. Um, so I, I really do have hope. And I, I, I looking at um, the, the amount of activity in Canada, in the UK, and elsewhere in Europe, I think there is um, a real sense that there there could be an international coalition, it, and it will be it will be particularly important, I think, to um, uh, to get uh, voices from the developing world to speak out because what we've seen at the UN so far is that when uh, the United States or the EU uh, tries to get a collective letter uh, given to the UN to investigate this issue. It's uh, there's a response from China where they're able to get a, a, a letter with a longer list of signatories, mostly from the developing world, where China's mm -hmm. soft power is is increasing. So I think it's it's a difficult uh, job to get um, countries in the developing world on board to discussing this issue, but I think it's very important. Yeah, thank you so much. Anyone else? Sure, I can jump in real quick. Uh, I think one of the things that's important for the Biden administration is to really take ownership of some of the, the costs of the global war on terror. There's 37 million people that have been displaced by it in the Middle East, mm -hmm. and the U.S. has not accepted refugees at all under the current administration. And so developing a new refugee resettlement policy and a robust one in particular for Uyghur and Kazakhs that are in Kazakhstan mm -hmm. or Turkey and are, are mm -hmm. essentially stateless is really important mm -hmm. in showing the world that the U.S. is serious about uh, fighting for, for Muslim rights and against Islamophobia. Um, so I think that would go a long way in, in building diplomatic ties with Muslim-majority countries who so far have been reluctant to condemn what's happening to the Uyghurs. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Byler. Um, Dr. Rahan, any last words or thoughts on, on, on moving forward, particularly in this in light of the, the election of the new um, Biden administration? Yeah, um, I, uh, I hope as an Uyghur, I hope uh, that Biden administration should uh, continue the, uh, the um, uh, Trump administration's uh, policy on, on China, especially on Uyghur issue, uh, the human rights issue. And also by the candidate Biden uh, has uh, showed um, uh, much more attention on the equality, human rights, etc and uh, uh, minorities, mm -hmm. uh, minorities' rights, etc. So these mm -hmm. questions. And also uh, freedom, oh. uh, freedom. That's why, and I hope that Biden, President uh, uh, elected to Biden could show a real politic on, on this question. And uh, also uh, France and uh, 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 European Union uh, could more uh, uh, adjust uh, their policy with Biden's, uh, Biden's policy more easily than with uh, Trump's administration's policy. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, it is, it is um, I, I think, a moment of uh, a little bit of hope, um, uh, also considering the, the recent increase in attention by the Canadian Parliament. We'll be hearing by, from a parliamentarian later in the morning as well. Um, I know others are deeply committed and involved. Um, I would like to just take a quick uh, moment to thank all of you for your participation on the panel this morning. I We could have easily spent two more hours talking all of us about what's currently underway. And I just regret that we don't have more time this morning. Um, and finally, I just wanna, uh, 
give a quick shout out to my students who are watching this morning, uh, who several of whom were very, very actively engaged from the beginning and 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 recommending speakers who've been involved in the in the issue in Europe, and um, and are deeply concerned as well. I'm I'm hopeful that that this issue will will gain increasing traction and that it will be understood on the terms that. Uh, Dr. Rehan, you were discussing it, and that this is a form of Islamophobia, and um, and it's it's a critical one of our time. And um, as as Dr. Kotler said at the outset, um, and I would agree that that this is the most pressing human rights issue of our time. Thank you.